and sailing was for me a way to you know get rid of my energy and really play a chess game on the water thanks again for joining us meryl and if you could just give us a basic rundown of what's gone on before coming here oh that's a big rundown um so um i grew up in the netherlands and basically from a very very young age i was very much into sailing i loved sailing and um i was decent not really really talented well i mean i was always good but not like the crazy good people mm. and um i loved it so much that somehow i never quit and then by the time i was 16 i remember really well there was this um this dutch girl and she won a silver medal at the the sydney olympics and i was like wow i want that too and from there on, all of a sudden, I had this this dream that I wanted to go to the Olympics and um, just chased that dream for many, many years and made it into reality in 2008 in Beijing and uh, had a good run there. And uh, it was pretty good. Cool. How, how old were you when, uh, in 2000, when you saw the, uh, the Dutch woman win silver? Um, I think just 16 or 15, around around that that time. Um, I remember she won a silver medal in Atlanta in 1996 as well. Okay. Um, and I, I remember really clearly, like, my mom woke me up in the morning and told me, like, oh, this girl, you know, who, you've seen her once sailing, because that's around the time when I started sailing. Like, she just won a silver medal. It wasn't that great. Um, and I, I remember that really well, but back then it seemed like so far away and so unrealistic. You know, I had just learned how to sail and I did a race every now and then. I had no idea what it meant. But in 2000, it was like, wow, that's actually something. Maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can try to achieve that same, same goal. That's awesome. I'm so curious. So I have never sailed before. Um, and to those of our listeners who haven't, what does it mean early on to be to be good or not good at at sailing? So I think what it means is that you um, you're winning races or you're not. Or at least that's how good is defined in the minds of many people that are in the sailing world. And as a kid, I mean, I was I was quite tall. I was pretty soon pretty heavy. And in the youth classes, you you know you gotta. It's a big advantage if you're small. So I was doing pretty well, but when there wasn't a lot of wind, I was quite heavy compared to the other kids. And that was, you know, not my own fault. That's just how you grow. There's very little you can do about that. Um, and I think kids that were the same age as I was, but were just a lot lighter, did a little better when there was light wind. And I did a little better when there was a lot of wind, but I was never like one of these really dominant, young, truly talented athletes. You know, some people just had that really big spark. And for me, that came a lot later, like when I... I think my development was more around the age of 16, 17, and all of a sudden I made those huge steps and all of a sudden like I, I was able to do the things that these other kids were a little earlier. What do you think, aside from uh, physical growth and development, allowed you to make those big steps at that point in your career? Um, that's a very good question. I think I met the right people at the right time. I had this uh, amazing Belgium training partner, uh, Evie, and she's actually going to the games this summer in Rio as well. Wonderful. She's one of the medal candidates there. She um, she won a silver medal in a bronze medal, a bronze medal in London. So she's she's amazing. Um, and we sort of started training together, and um, we got lucky that we had each other. 
and we pushed each other to great lengths. We traveled Europe together, like tied up the boats and just had the same goals, same dreams. And I think when you have someone to share that with, that is so powerful. Take us deeper into the conversations that you had. I, I think partnerships play such a key role. I remember for, for me, business partnerships or roommates have been so powerful because there are a ton of these offline conversations that just happen in the thousands of hours you spend together. Um, what were some of those conversations like? I mean, we had many serious conversations, but also many silly conversations. I, I think when I think back over our time, I, one of my favorite moments is like sitting in the car and then um, I was, I think I am three months or four months older than Evie, so I had my driver's license a little bit before. Nice. And um, um, so I remember this one trip where I was driving and she didn't have her license yet and Evie was holding the map. And it was in the time before we had Google Maps and um, we were going to Denmark and um, we ended up in Sweden. Now, I don't <laughs> expect you to know the, my, the, my Scandinavian geography. The Scandinavian geography, but it's not the same country. <laughs> different, different country. It's a different country. I'm, I'm from America, so I don't know about the rest of the world, but I hear things. They're, they're a different country. And sure. I think um, we were going the wrong way because we were just enjoying the drive and each other and <laughs> the conversations and the joy and uh, this this adventure that we were sharing together. Like we were on our way to a training camp in Denmark and then after that training camp, we would do the Youth European Championships and, you know, the year before, I think she did really well and I didn't do so well. So like there was a lot of pressure on the two of us. We both wanted to do really well. Like, you know, we wanted to medal there and we were going to that training camp. So it was like this very exciting time and um, those were really one of my those road trips together, they're still one of my favorite memories. That's awesome. I remember hearing about um, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck when they were young actors. I heard that, I was reading that they used to do road trips together and they would flesh out their characters as they were on these long road trips um, far before they were famous or, or getting parts uh, at all. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, it's the best thing you can do. And uh, nothing is more amazing than you know, seeing that someone you shared all those years working with, she's still, you know, following that path, following that dream and being very successful at it. It makes me proud as well. That's, that's, that's really cool. That's wonderful. One of the things I've been reading Angela Duckworth's book, uh, she's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She writes a book on grit. And one of the things that she talks about is having the ability to play early on in the early years of developing a skill, being able to find your way and see what you enjoy about something. Um, was sailing like that for you? And it sounds like there wasn't such a strong level of achievement or hardcore positive reinforcement externally early. But I, I'm, I'm curious to, to dive a little bit more into those early years. Um, I think I really enjoyed being outside. Like as a kid, I had lots of energy and wanted to be outside and sailing was for me a way to, you know, get rid of my energy and really play a chess game on the water. That's what it is. So not only is it a physical, physically demanding sport, it's also, you know, you need to pay attention. Like you can go really, really fast and work really hard on going really fast. But if you're going, you know, the wrong direction, there's not really a big point in going very fast. You might end up in Sweden. Yes. <laughs> that's might. okay sometimes. <laughs> sometimes that's, that's actually, <laughs> sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's not. So no, um, and um, of course I wanted to win, but um, 
uh, it, it was more um, about my personal growth. Like I wanted to get better than the race before. Um, so, you know, if I would finish 25th at a national championship the next year, I wanted to be 20th and then 15th. Like it was this very gradual movement and it just gave me this, you know, this, this really clear path of, of how I spent my time. And it was very easy um, when I was in high school, you know, it was like I'm training hard for this one thing. Um, you know, I, I unfortunately have to miss out on some of the social events with my class, but I've got this very clear goal of what I want to do and what I want to achieve. And that, in a sense, made my life also a little easier. Having that clarity. Exactly. Somebody was telling me recently um, about the idea and reminding me of the idea that constraints can bring freedom. Would you say that that was a little bit of a constraint for you? I think um, at the time I didn't realize it that way, but I, I think you phrase it beautifully. Um, it's, I think when you're in the position, you see the downsides, but looking back, I really see the upsides. You know, now I don't have that one clear little purpose anymore. And then you've got so many choices to make every single day. And every choice you make is, is a difficult one because, you know, A might be better than B or maybe C is even better. And it's, it's like this trade-off that you're unsure about. And I think when you've got really a clear purpose of what you're doing and really clear goals, it's easier to make those choices. And I think looking back, I appreciate, um, I appreciate that a lot more that I had more clarity. I want to, I want to loop back to the present here in a second, but before we do, I'm curious, um, having such clarity and having such a clear goal and having seen, um, a Dutch Olympian succeed in sailing, were there ever any times where you felt like your your quest, for lack of better terms, um, was in jeopardy? Where you felt like this this might not work? Oh, many times. I mean, um, when you when you do a sport professionally or when you do it at a really high level, um, I think you know ninety nine percent of the people they they lose more races than they win. Like not everyone can win, and that's why it's a sport and. I think getting yourself up after every time you don't win is really, really hard. And, you know, you're only remembered for the two or three times you do win. So it's, it's this constant struggle to, to keep believing in yourself and to keep enjoying the journey. Because if you just work for that achievement, it's, in, in my case, it wouldn't have worked. Like, I really enjoyed what I was doing, and that's why I was so passionate about it. And that's why not everything was about achievement. So interesting. One of our professors mentioned in a lecture she gave recently about quieting some of those inner demons, some of those inner voices. I think she called them gremlins. Um, and I can imagine some of the self-talk, especially putting in so many hours and sacrificing some of the social events after a loss. Um, it sounds like the ability to say, this is part of my purpose, allows for some of that flex saying, well, we didn't win today, but we're still in process. I'm still enjoying the process. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the way I, I tried to phrase it. And, of course, there were times where that was a lot easier than other times. And um, I think I also just didn't have the courage to give up because it takes courage to give up as well. You know, when you're on this path and everyone around you knows that you're on that path, you know, it takes courage to deviate from that path. And I didn't want to create that courage. I wanted to stay on that path and just do what I said I would do. 
So I think this is a wonderful dovetail into more recent years where you have given up competitive professional sports. Um, at what point did you do that? At what point did you say, well, I want to take a different path now? Um, so after the 2008 Olympics, I thought that I would quit. Um, mm. I wouldn't want to call it give up. Sure. I don't sure. know. It feels feels a little strange. Um, you do other athletic things too, I know. Yeah, yeah no, I know, I know. Um, so after 2008, I thought I, you know, I, I like won my medal at the Olympics, you know, what else? Like how, how can I like overdo it? Like how can I do another four years? But then I realized that I wasn't doing it for the achievement, but because I enjoyed the life. Um, so I, I did another campaign, another four years. Unfortunately, I didn't make it to the Olympics, but by the time that campaign had finished, um, it really, it, there was clarity for me that that was, that was it. Um, like, because I, I had said to myself another four years, it was, it was an easy choice to, to step out and an easy realization. Like if I, you know, want to do something other than sailing in my life, it's probably right now the time to, to find a real job. Yes. It's so, it's so interesting too. It's like a, it's a substantial commitment to say for another four years, I'm going to try. Um, and just to clarify for our listeners, if we haven't mentioned already, uh, Meryl and her team won silver in 08. And, um, I've heard, I, I remember you telling me a, there's a very dramatic story about winning silver versus gold in 08. It's, um, uh, we were going into the last day, and um, number one and two, so that was us and the British girls, we both couldn't finish third anymore, and it was whoever would win the last race would, would win gold. It's a point system. It's a point system, yes. Okay. And it was just whoever would win that last race or would finish in front of the other boat. Mm. And, um, you know, we, ha we, we were really, really good in, in light breeze. Um, and I think we had a little bit of an edge there. And in China, we had about... 90% of the time we would have light breeze, but then the race got canceled because there wasn't enough wind. And then the next day, Ironic. it was a big storm. <laughs> and um, I mean, we fought, we fought really hard, um, but we had to admit the British girls were just a touch better and they won. And that was, that was harsh. I was, um, I think because we couldn't finish third anymore, like we, we didn't have that, that victory, like, whew, we made it, we won a medal for us. It was like, oh, we didn't win gold. Yeah. I wonder it's, I wonder what the medal means for you now. The medal itself doesn't really mean a lot. It's in the safe somewhere with my parents. <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I think in three or four years. I haven't seen you wearing it around yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll take it over. Um, I've had so many people ask me, like, can I see it once? So I, I, I might bring it next time I go to Europe. Sure. Um, but um, it's more um, an acknowledgement for the hard work I put in. I think that's what it means to me. And a validation of um, that it wasn't just a hobby. You know, it's a validation of that it was actually profession you know being an athlete is not just going to practice every day it's much more than that 
I'm, I'm so curious. I love this idea of a profession and something that you really commit to. Um, what do you see your profession as going forward? This has been a really interesting question, especially for, for other Olympic athletes we've interviewed. It's, it's, such, it's such a question. Um, it's perfectly okay to give what I will call the Stanford GSB answer, which is I'm still figuring it out. It's a really hard question for me as well. Um, you know how I talked about that you have clarity on your goals when you're an athlete. And I think that is, you know, it's one of the downsides because everything is, is focused towards of the growth of that goal. But it's also one of the big, big upsides that it's super clear of what you're trying to achieve. And I think when you're in the job market or a more normal everyday job or you go to your job in the morning and you come home at night and it's not, it doesn't have this huge component of meaning. Um, it's much harder to define what that exact profession is that you dream about doing. Um, it's not. It's not built-in meaning. Yes, perhaps. and you have to find it, right? Because there, there. I really believe that you can find meaning in anything. And for me, sailing has meaning in a way that I really want believed in that, and I wanted to achieve that. And I think. Um, that is something I'm, I'm trying to search for that same intensity of meaning in a job in the future. And I'm sure I'll find it. It's just right now I'm still a little lost in, in trying to find it. Um, and I'll, um, on the side of my sailing years, I, I managed to get a degree in, in physics. I'm trying to, just, just, you know, just on the side. As, as, yeah. as one does. No, so I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit more back to my technical roots, um, and I'm going to be working here in the Bay Area. Um, and I, I hope that that's going to give me the, the purpose and meaning I'm looking for. It will never be as clear, I know, because it's not, you know, it's not that, that three weeks in August that you have to perform because it's like this constant thing where you have to perform. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Ask me again in two years when we do another updated version of this. I will. I will. Um, it's so interesting, the, the search for meaning. I remember hearing classmates talk about identity and this, this rings, this is ringing a lot of bells for me because when I left the first, um, startup I worked on post-college, this, it, it really was my identity at that point. I remember even thinking I am ministry of supply. And then when I left that job, I, I was no longer that. And then the question was, well, if not that, then, and it was so interesting because I had slowly but surely removed hobbies, uh, removed uh, some of that time with friends and some of those relationships. And it took a lot of time to rebuild, one, those things, but also, two, understanding a larger narrative arc, understanding meaning outside of one project and, and what that meant. It's so funny, there's a, I think in America, we, we like to glorify serial entrepreneurs. I always have this really funny image of like a guy holding a box of Wheaties. You know, this is, anyway, that's a, that's a pun. That's a, yeah. But um, to all the listeners, she's smiling. She may not be laughing, but there's a, a grimaced smile there. This thing smile on the face. It's, it's, it's a fake <laughs> smile. It's a, I support you <laughs> smile. <laughs> But it was so funny because I realized that if I was to be an entrepreneur going forward, I had no choice but 
to be a serial entrepreneur. There was no, there was no option anymore. Um, and so it's just, it's a, it's a weird new nebulous reality. And I think in some ways, zooming way out, I think it was kind of always that nebulous reality. I just had the luxury of a vehicle for a while to focus in on meaning. So it's, um, it's definitely something I think we're all, we're all trying to figure out. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, we're, we're coming to the end of this, this chunk of the season here, and we've talked to these different people um, about some of their vocations, some of their professions, and I know that there's kind of a, a mystic aura around the Olympics. And so I want to take a few moments here and just ask some fun questions about the Olympic Games, if I can. I, I'll, I'll stay PC and, and all this, I promise. Of course. Um, there are other articles for those listeners who wish to read other things. But I, I'm curious with, with the Olympics, what's, uh, what's something fun and cool that you got to experience as an athlete um, that you may, maybe the, the public or the people who aren't athletes get to experience? So the Olympics are crazy. I think that's the only word how you can summarize it. Um, so it starts when you step into the plane in your home country and you fly to the actual Olympics. From that moment onwards, you are no longer allowed to wear your own clothes. Oh. You're only allowed to wear team clothing. Wow. So that's how it starts. Cool. They've got like, it's like the Steve Jobs thing where you have multiple pairs of the same, you get like a little hanger set up. And then you, you, you know, you go to this drop off point and you, um, or yeah, they drop your clothes off there and you pick it up and then you try it on. And of course everything's too big or too small. And then you swap with your teammates and then you make sure you get something that fits. <laughs> and then, um, so you wear, you know, your, your team uniform in my case, it was very orange. Nice. You look very orange for like the three weeks to come. And um, so you step into that plane and from that moment onwards, everyone knows what's going on. Because uh, you're flying to Beijing. And you're orange. And you're orange. <laughs> <laughs> they know what's happening. Gotcha. You've got like all these logos of like the Olympic committee on your arm, the Olympic rings. Mm. So then the staring starts. Ah, uh, the staring. And... um. It's it's a funny experience. It's a really funny experience. How do you react to the stick? I mean, is it is it like a breaking the fourth wall, look at the camera, high five people sort of thing? Is it a ignore it? What's the reaction? I think there? I'm just thinking back of the time my my teammates and I we we stepped into the plane and I think we just giggled, like we didn't really know what to do with it. It was just like, well, let's giggle this way. Like let's just <laughs> you know be three silly girls and just laugh. And then you know when you. When you arrive there, you've got your your accreditation, they call it. It's this plastic card, and that's not only like your access card to everything, but it's also your visa. So in case oh. you lose that, you'll get deported right away. So don't lose that thing. Okay. So that's, you know, the first thing they tell you is, like, okay, so I'll, I'll be careful with this little plastic card. Sure. I'll put it around my neck. And then you go to the Olympic Village. And um, we were, I think, lucky that we were not staying in Beijing for the first two weeks because our races were in Qingdao, which was about 800 miles southwest of Beijing. Famous for its beer, as Famous I for its beer. That is very, very correct. It, yeah, that's... <laughs> that's what it's famous for. That's what it's famous that's for, Qingdao beer. Um, 
And, um, you know, you, you, you go to the place there, you have to go through all these security barriers. Like it's, it's a lot of logistics to deal with. And it's, it's very hard to keep it as to keep your normal routine as a racer. Cause all athletes, they have their routines when they're racing, right? You need to do your preparation. You need to check the boat. If it's, um, if there, if there's nothing, you know, that can break and you need to do all these preparations. And at the Olympics, it's really hard to do those preparations because you've got security checks everywhere. You've got like you know, 24 hours, they need to know where you are. It's, 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 there's all this added on stuff that you have to deal with. And I think our coach was extremely good in taking most of that away and just telling us, you know, all we do is we just go on the water and we sail around these three boys and we go up and we go down and we finish and that's it. And we're like, okay, that's how you summarize the Olympics. That's fine, but it's not that, <laughs> you know, it's, it is certainly more than that, but more that was, than just three buoys that, that his vision was three boys up and down and that's it. So, you know, we try to stick to that as much as possible. But then, you know, day one arrives and our races started right the day after the opening ceremony. And we, wow. we were sitting in this whole massive dining hall. Like imagine like this, this dining hall with like food from all continents around the world. Because that's one of the requirements for the Olympics that every athlete can eat their own food. I want my Antarctican I don't know, penguins? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they eat that in Antarctica, <laughs> but like... Different continent, the other continents. It's, um, it, they have everything. Like, gotcha. from a McDonald's to, um, you name it, they have it. Um, and Mon so... Mongolian oxen. They, they have everything. everything. It's, it's, it's crazy. And then they put the screen up in the dining hall and they showed like the opening ceremony. And, you know, me and my teammates, we said, oh, let's have a look. Let's just sit there. And I just got too nervous after two minutes. So I left and went to bed. I was like, I cannot deal with this. I need to do my three boys up and down and back. And that's it. That's my Olympics. That's how I'm going to approach this. My teammates were the same. We all left. And then the next morning we, we step into the elevator. And with our racing bags, a little nervous, you know, but we're like, okay, we got this. We got this. This is what we trained for all those years. Step into the elevator, and the Norwegian team is there. Ah, the Norwegians. And actually, the Norwegian, that girl with one of their teammates, she had won a gold medal the Olympics before in Athens. Oh. So, you know, we are like, oh. What grudge match going on? And, um, you know, the sailing world is small, so you know everyone. Like, sure. you know, like all athletes, you know, like, you know people. So uh, we step into the elevator, and like every other time, we would say, and we say, hey, good morning, you know, like you would do. And polite, nice people. Exactly. They did not reply. They looked straight ahead. Oh. And I remember like, is it me? And then my teammate tried, hello, good morning. Same thing. And then the last one like, hello, good morning. And like nothing happened. And at that moment, we just burst out in laughing and we're like, wow, this is craziness. Surreal. This is just crazy land. And, um, you know, that is what the Olympics is about. People try to do like staring competitions to get each other like, you know, out of focus, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's just crazy. So from that point onwards, we were like, okay, three boys up and down. That's it. And I think that really worked for us. It sounds like that helped maintain your sense of perspective. Exactly. Like you can't get taken away by where you're allowed to stand or not stand. And when you have to talk to the media and what t-shirt you have to wear. And Oh, by the way, you know, the future king is coming for lunch. Would you like to join? I mean, those are all distractions that are really hard to deal with. We did, by the way, go to the lunch with the future yeah, king because yeah, that kind of have to. That was okay. very cool. Obligation. But like, other than Pretty that, fun. like, it's really hard to stay focused. It's really because there are so many distractions around. And it sounds like, I mean, what I'm thinking of is just this idea that, 
you know, you get to the Olympics, you've already been very successful. And at the moment when you're trying to get those last bonus points, really, really get that lift, three buoys, um, suddenly there are all these distractions. Yeah. It is very, very hard. I wonder if to a certain extent, you talked earlier on about this idea of uh, talented or not talented. Um, but I think something I've seen and observed is when, when it's perceived that you're successful, that continuing to be successful takes very little, if any, effort. I think it's the opposite. I think it's so <laughs> much easier to become successful mm. because you don't have all this pressure of how it should be. Yep. You can only think of like how it can be. Mm. And as soon as you start thinking in how it should be, it becomes, you put so much more pressure on yourself. Mm. Like this should be a perfect race. We should be able to go and do all these different, like all these uh, additional layers. Exactly. And when you just think about it can be, then you can really focus on like, okay, this is the race. We just focus on just this race, just this moment, just the now. And then you forget about all the other distractions. And once you've reached that certain level, there's all these additional pressures that that you have. And You're wearing orange 24-7. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, it, it's harder to, to get that focus. And I think at the Olympics performing there, it's all about, you know, make yourself crazy. Just do what you're good at and do what you always do. And don't all of a sudden worry about whether your drink is cold or hot, you know. If you always drink hot water because it's lying in the sun then just keep drinking hot water you don't all of a sudden need a cold because it's the olympics yeah so i i i think that's wonderful it's so interesting don't uh, don't allow the um like the newness or the the hotness of the event don't allow that shiny object to distract you exactly so i'm curious in in concluding our interview something we we always ask is what's, and I think we've gone into this already, so feel free to deviate from this, but uh, something we generally ask is what's something that I would never have learned, that we would never have learned not being in your shoes? And I think, I think we've already gone into this, but I, I, I'm still going to ask the question. I'm putting it out there. So I think I would have never learned that with a lot of hard work and careful planning, you can achieve so much more than you think. And it sounds very, very cheesy, but it is so true. With that consistency, with that effort. Exactly. It's fascinating. Angela Duckworth talks about in her book, if, if talent plays a factor, something along the lines of talent times effort um, equals something or other. But then she multiplies it by effort again. She's like, effort effort plays a role twice. And you starting out, similar to the other Olympic athletes and other athletes we've interviewed, were not the best. I certainly wasn't the best at the start. Like, I wasn't the best when I was 12 years old. I was fine. I was great. I mean, I had the talent check mark, but I didn't have the A-plus for talent. And then you continued to... But I made it. Yeah. I also want to note one thing before we close that I'm really appreciating, which is that it seems like you've maintained, and, and as I've known you uh, in school as well, this sense of humor and perspective. 
it sounds like, you know, the Olympics, oh, what a serious thing. And yet there seems to be a sense of giggling, of cheeriness. And I, I just wanna I just wanna check in there and see, am I reading that correctly? Yes, you are. I mean, if you're at the Olympics, you might as well have fun, right? Yeah. I mean, you do it once in your life, maybe twice. Some people do it three times. But if you forget to enjoy that, what's the point? Fair enough. Um, as we conclude, I have to ask, is there anything else uh, that we haven't covered today that you'd like to add for our listeners? I think we've covered a fair bit. I'm hoping we can do an updated version soon. That'd be great. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks a ton, Meryl.